The Behavioral Corner is produced in cooperation with Retreat Behavioral Health, where healing happens. Hi and welcome, I'm Steve Martorano and this is The Behavioral Corner. You're invited to hang with us as we discuss the ways we live today, the choices we make, the things we do, and how they affect our health and well-being. So you're on the corner, the behavioral corner. Please hang around a while. Hey, everybody. How are you? Welcome once again to the behavioral corner. You recognize me. I I hang out on the corner for a living. (laughs) My name is Steve Martirano. What we do here on uh, the behavioral corner is we talk about behavioral health, which is an enormous topic. Uh, Simply, our behavioral health is made up of everything that affects us the choices we make, uh, the the way we live our life, and how that all impacts our emotional, physical, and even spiritual health. So that's the corner. That's what we do. We are partnered with Retreat Behavioral Health, our great partners. You'll learn more about them uh, straight ahead. Very frequently on the corner, what we do is bring in folks to who have literally been there, done that. And, and we do that um, Because it's important, very important, to emphasize that no matter how large the problem of substance abuse is, and it is large, uh, no matter how sometimes it seems intractable, um, other times it leads many times to uh, a loss of life, there are stories of of recovery, and there are millions of them. There are millions of people that are living in long-term sobriety after struggling with substance abuse. It's important to remind people of that. To that end, we welcome to the Behavioral Corner our guest uh, for this episode, Gary Moore. Hi, Gary. Thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you. You're one of those been there, done that guys. I'm very fond of saying, and I've said it again and again, that all stories of substance abuse and recovery are the same, except they're different. We're grateful to have you uh, join us with your different story. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, how old are you? Where, uh, where'd you grow up? Um, I'm 51. I currently live down on the eastern shore of Maryland. But growing up, I lived in um, northern Maryland, the uh, Baltimore County area, up in up in the sticks. Mm-hmm. And um, I just, you know, I was born in '70, so I lived through the '70s and '80s with. Uh, my parents were bikers, so um, I think it's probably not necessary to say that there was a lot of rowdiness, plenty and plenty of uh, of substances to check out and try when I was, you know, a teenager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, we were we were more or less joking before we got on the uh, on the air here today, and I said, uh, "Well, I, you know, your story is your story. If you were raised by missionaries in in Africa, that's going to be a different kind of story." Well, this is a different kind of story. Uh, <laughs> raised by bikers, were they uh, were they part of like a an outlaw motorcycle group or just recreational bikers? No, they were beyond recreational. You know, it was definitely their lifestyle. Right. Um, but they never really joined the gang. Mm-hmm. To tell that they're both of my parents are passed away, so this is not going to cause them any harm. But they, um, like I said, they partied all the time. But they also grew pot. And um, and sold that to to kind of fuel their uh, their adventures. So to that extent, my dad was definitely associated with some of the gangs, but was never, you know, that just wasn't his thing. 
not a joiner. Good. It shouldn't come as any surprise that you might have wound up abusing substances. Incidentally, I apologize for not mentioning at the outset that Gary, who has a, obviously a colorful story about how he wound up uh, abusing substances, is about to celebrate three years of sobriety. So, and by the way, no mean feat and congratulations. Keep up the good work. What we're going to leave here today with, I hope, is a sense people go, well, if that dude can get straight, maybe I got a shot. But how about siblings? Did you have brothers and sisters? I did not. um, And we lived on a farm. So, you know, I grew up relatively isolated. I mean, I had friends and that kind of thing, but definitely um, spent a lot of time alone for sure. You know, what's interesting when you talk to people who who were raised in circumstances way more middle class and I guess, typical than yours, which is exotic, let's face it. Even they will say very often, my parents drank not to excess, but, you know, they drank. Liquor was in the house. There would be adult parties all the time where adult beverages were served. Uh, And so a kind of normalcy surrounded alcohol for these people growing up. It didn't seem dangerous or exotic. And then they wound up having a problem. You got that story in spades. I mean, there must have been a time very early on when you just thought everybody grew pot, everybody got loaded, and everybody partied, right? Pretty much, other than um, my grandparents lived on the same farm, but, you know, the houses were somewhat spread apart. So they were um, somewhat of a mitigating influence on, um, you know, the direction in which I was headed. That said, otherwise, you know, they were hard workers. They went to work all the time. Of course, some of that was aided by chemicals, so to speak. But yeah, they they uh, it, there was a lot of partying going on. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you were you. It was never kept away from you. It was just part of your lifestyle, right? It it was, and um, especially when I was younger, um, before I was an adolescent, it terrified me that at some point my parents were going to end up, you know, in jail. You know, seventies and eighties during the the Reagan years in particular, when it was just say no, they were actually asking you to turn in anybody, including your parents. Um, you know, in the meantime, my parents would drive around with a vehicle that has a big pot leaf bumper sticker that says end the prohibition. So no, it was no secret. The anxiety level for a young kid must have been pretty high. I mean, they're your folks. You, you could recognize their lifestyle was a, a little different than other people's. Um, you, you think do you think that anxiety contributed to your drifting into that, into substance abuse? Absolutely. I realized that, you know, somewhat early on when I was in my twenties, I guess, but I did nothing about it. You know, I, I sort of thought, well, this is, you know, this is the way it is. You drink, you party. That's, that's the lifestyle. It wasn't until recently, really since, um, since my time at retreat in 2019, that I've had the ability to sort of clear-headedly look back and and see what was going on, how, how it was affecting me as a kid. Um, and like you said, it definitely caused a lot of anxiety because, you know, not knowing whether mom and dad were going to come home at all. You know, they had plenty of accidents. I, I rode with them when, you know, either one of them was so drunk they'd run, run off the road and I'd have to yell, that, you know. 
yeah, a little bit of anxiety. There. Yeah, a little, a little. It wasn't Ozzy and Harriet. That that's for sure. Yeah. And I, um, you know, I it sounds. I don't want to just simply disparage my parents. They they loved me very much. There's no question about it. That's sure. just the way they lived. Yeah, there's no conflict there. I know it's confusing to people, but you certainly can have a loving relationship to your child and a kind of uh, it seemed to me steadiness. You know, you you went to work and you did all that, and also have a dangerous lifestyle. Right. A reckless and dangerous lifestyle. Uh, can I ask how your parents passed away? Substance abuse in both, both? cases. Yeah. My mom had an aneurysm. Um, she and I had not been speaking uh, for, it was about a year or so. And then, you know, I got a call that she was unconscious, had an aneurysm, was it uh, at Hopkins in Baltimore. So the, the last time I saw my mom, she was unconscious and um, I hadn't talked to her in a year. So that was, there's some pretty heavy guilt associated with that. Um, my dad's story had a tremendously positive outcome. Um, obviously, it's not easy losing a loved one. Um, but what he did was pretty amazing. You know, they, like I said, they both partied all the time. Um, eventually, as they got older, the, the going to bars and that kind of thing, not as much. But my dad in particular drank, you know, starting in the morning throughout the day. Uh, and so around 2000, um, I got a call that he had fallen and had a brain hemorrhage and they didn't expect him to leave the hospital. Um, then when he did leave the hospital, they said, don't expect him to live longer than a year. He had severe liver damage, um, you know, as a result of accidents and obviously the substance abuse, he had hep C, but not only did he go on to live beyond a year, he became involved in AA in his area and um, and went on for nine years. He was nine years sober when, when he finally passed away from the substance abuse. But during that nine years, and particularly towards the end, um, he was a big help within his fellowship, within that community. He was very sick. He was uh, often in, in quite a bit of pain. Nonetheless, he would go and pick up that person who didn't have a ride to the meeting. He would go to that meeting where he knew someone was having an anniversary to support that person and, and you know, be there uh, with the fellowship to celebrate. So a huge turnaround, maybe, maybe not in time as far as, you know, um, and living on and so forth, but, you know, his grandkids really knew him as a sober person. You know, they, they really never knew the man that I did that I grew yeah. up. That's a remarkable uh, turn of events. Um, during that period when dad, you know, decided to get sober, were you in active uh, use at that point? I was. I attempted uh, sobriety, honestly, a number of times um, throughout that period. You know, I'd, I'd get eight months and then relapse. I'd, you know, get maybe a little over a year and same thing. There was some guilt for me, because um, I knew my dad was doing this. He obviously knew I had a problem. He never pushed me to uh, to get myself straight. Um, you know, that's, we all know you can't push somebody to, to do that into sobriety. It just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. um, but nonetheless, I um, despite the things that I did um, that were counter to what my dad was doing, I'm, I'm you know, was and I am tremendously proud of, of what he did. And uh, 
So, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, it's never too late. So I'm, I'm grateful that I, I did learn from him, you know, his experiences and, and I, uh, I apply that in my sobriety, you know, yeah. I really do. Well, let's, so let's talk about, I mean, I know there's no real good answer to this, but um, you, you decided at some point that what you were doing wasn't working anymore. Uh, you'd seen your, your both, both your parents uh, pass away as a result of substance abuse. And then you make this decision to get to a treatment facility. Do you, do you remember that moment when you went, I got to do something else? Somewhat at that point I was, uh, drinking vodka on a daily basis, you know, starting in the morning, I had to have it when I got up and, um, it, and I was doing a, a fairly good job of hiding it from people, you know, people close to me, but there came a point and this has happened anytime in the past when I've gone, you know, to get help. Um, my alcoholism, my disease causes me to want to die, to not be around anymore. Um, when I drink, I get to a place in my head where I know what I'm doing is wrong. I, I've seen the results of what happens from alcoholism, very, you know, up front and close, as I already explained. But for me, what happened that last time, I, uh, I was very fortunate to have um, a friend who went to retreat reach out, or some of my family reached out to him I, you know, I had been to rehab when I was 19. I didn't have a whole lot of faith in it because I thought once you get out, you know, you're, you've, you've got to do what you got to do. Um, but what I, what I heard from my friend and, and uh, family members was that this place was, you know, to get yourself sober, but also to work on the mental health issues. And being suicidal, it was pretty easy for me to understand that I had mm -hmm. mental health issues in addition to, um, you know, alcoholism, addiction. And so, and honestly, um, I, I heard that the campus was beautiful and there were lots of trees and set in nature. I'm, I'm a woodworker and I have a love for trees and, and that and nature in general. So um, that was another thing that, that drew me to it, but it honestly, it wasn't that difficult of a decision. You know, I was, I needed to do something or I was going to die. I was going to. Yeah. 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 That'll, that'll tend to focus your attention when you understand that the alternative is, uh, is the, a dead end. Would, uh, had you, had you made suicide attempts in the uh, prior to this? Uh, I don't, well, I guess you could call it an attempt. I, um, after my dad passed away, um, I had been on at that point, I'm an amputee. I lost my leg in a construction accident in, um, 1997 and had it amputated in 99, which that was when Oxycontin was becoming the thing, you know, mm -hmm. that it was being pushed by the manufacturers. And so I was sort of a guinea pig for that. Over the years, I, I kind of, I stopped for a while then get back into it. But around the time my dad died, I was very much strung out on uh, oxycodone. You know, I was buying it, stealing it, getting it however I could, and all the while drinking. Also during that period, a doctor put me on um, an antidepressant. That doctor, however, was, uh, he got shut down for overprescribing. It was basically oh. a pill mill. Yeah. So all the stuff that I was taking, all of a sudden I couldn't get it anymore. So I quit that stuff cold turkey and put an antidepressant. And uh, 
went into um, a period of psychosis. Um, I, at one point, I um, I was running from the cops at the time because I had uh, I had a DWI, and then after that, a hit and run on a suspended license. So I was in this hotel. Um, I was out of my head. I went up on the roof and sat on sort of the parapet on the edge with my back facing, you know, away from the roof um, with a loaded 357 in my mouth. And, um, you know, it's, it's the weirdest thing. My, I guess you could say moment of clarity that brought me out of that was, and this is just crazy thinking, this is how, where I was it started raining a little bit and I was worried about the gun getting rusted. So <laughs> is that right? Yeah. I, it's sounds obviously very strange, but, uh, but that's what happened. That's just, that's how far out of my head I was. Um, did you have a family during all at this point in time? Did you have, uh, were you married? Do you have kids? I did. Um, my wife at the time, we, got married in 1997 three months later my accident happened where i lost my leg um you know it was kind of rough from the start Um, yeah i have a son and a daughter uh my daughter's 20 my son's 24 so to some extent they grew up around some of the stuff that i you know there was there was drinking pretty much all the time it was you know just kind of what we did um I'm very grateful that despite all of the things that I did that harmed or could have caused serious harm to my kids and to my family, um, despite all that, they're great people. They're oh, great. You know, yeah. Uh, both of them in college and, uh, and doing well. So. That's great. Let's, let's talk a little bit about the, and everybody's situation in, in treatment is different and certainly everybody's a path to, maintaining sobriety is uh, different. Uh, you know, you know how it works. If, if it works, it's good. If, if this is helping you, then it, then it's good by definition. But, but you mentioned that you had, you know, co-occurring mental health situations going on. Uh, when you start to, um, you know, on this road to sobriety and you're, and you're, you know, you're not using, you're still, I guess, suffering from uh, clinical depression, right? Um. Yeah. So what happened was um, when I when I went to retreat, they confirmed some of the diagnoses that I already had. There was, you know, PTSD, um, you know, major depression, um, anxiety, which obviously those conditions will exacerbate or cause it. But retreat was where I really started to recognize and accept that I had, you know, pretty significant mental illness. And so once I left retreat, the things that I learned there and the turnaround that I experienced there, you know, turnaround in my behavior and so forth, allowed me to continue my care, my mental health maintenance. And not too long after, um, after seeing a, a several psychiatrists, they determined that I was had bipolar and began treatment on that. And it it's helped a lot, you know, coming back from retreat and um, being sober and working on my sobriety. And I still, I had all this crazy stuff going on in my head, uh, you know, couldn't focus. I'd become very angry and that kind of thing. Um, so that's, yeah, again, when it became pretty clear that, that I had some mental health and stuff yeah, that right. I needed to take care of. First of all, abusers um, have to come to that insight 
themselves, but the general population that, that that's just observing the, this stuff, I don't think quite yet understands that the behavior, the abuse of the whatever the substance is, is a manifestation of something else that's going on, that if it isn't addressed, you're going to wind up in trouble. Now you've got three years coming in uh, in a month. So, I mean, that's, that's a considerable uh, length of time. Some of the skills that you've picked up now that help you maintain your sobriety, could, could you elaborate on them? I mean, a couple of the things I've read was it's important for someone uh, in recovery to develop good communication skills. In other words, being able to tell people what's going on. Do you find that to be true? Absolutely. You know, from family and friends to the medical folks, the, the psychiatrists, the, the uh, therapist, um, family, friends, my sponsor, you know, if, if I'm not honest with, uh, with any of them, it's not going to work out. What's happened for me and, and for which I'm so grateful is the support system that I've obviously contributed to it, but other people saw me and, you know, I was trying to, um, to make things better and be sober and I got support from them. So to me, that's a critical part of it. I, I can't stay sober or sane without help from other people. Just yeah. Let's talk a little, uh, a couple, just a couple other items about skills. Problem solving is a skill that has to be developed uh, if you're going to maintain sobriety. I mean, in the past, most substance abusers solve their problem by getting high or drunk. Uh, do, you, do you find that uh, you're obviously better at solving problems now than when you were using, right? Yeah, absolutely. And kind of beyond just not drinking or not taking drugs um, is the you know, it's, it's more than that. It's a spiritual thing. It's, um, and, and it's, I guess the biggest thing of it that people should be aware of is, is you, you have to maintain that. And, um, so part of that maintenance for me was to not react quickly to things, particularly ah. bad things that were going on, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, all right, take a step back, you know, think about it, maybe meditate, clear your head and think about it again. And then in my case, I talk to my sponsor sometimes, or I talk to, you know, family or friends. I'm fortunate to have another family member. She actually went to retreat a month after I did. Um, we talk sometimes. and um, But yeah, it's it's a comprehensive approach. It really yeah. is. But for did, me, I, did you find it particularly difficult to uh, repair uh, the damage done to your relationships with friends and family? Yeah. I mean, I, I lived a lifetime of... Uh, just running away, you know, kind of. Um, and that's not something that, you know, you fix in a week or a day or, right. even, or even these nearly three years that I've been sober. Um, it's it's going to take a long time to really uh, sure to work through that stuff. And finally here, I mean, because we, we want to give people some idea of uh, what this is like on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, relapse scares the hell out of people who don't know really what relapse is about. It's not part of recovery, but it certainly occurs. How do you avoid it? Do you, I mean, do you worry about relapsing? Do you get urges and um, have to work against them? How do you avoid relapsing? 
Well, again, the having that support system there because there's people kind of looking out for you. Um, really just working through the fellowship, you know, going through the steps and the mental health part of it as well. I'm, fortunately, I, I no longer have the cravings for alcohol. I stopped taking the opioids shortly after that period of psychosis I had, and I'm kind of terrified of them. Um, as a matter of fact, I had surgery recently and had to take painkillers afterwards. And that was my biggest apprehension leading up to it. And no problem going under the knife, but it was after that and taking that medicine. But being aware and knowing that you can't do that stuff is kind of, for me anyway, that was the first part of it. And then it's like, how do you not do that stuff? And like I said, it, it's for me, it's, it's being a part of the 12-step program. It's maintaining my mental health. As you said, it's, it's communicating directly and honestly with those people. And then I know that they'll be there for me and, you know, vice versa, hopefully. Yeah. You know what, uh, Gary, it's, it's a, it's a remarkable story. Um, you know, a lot of people starting out where you did uh, with the things that happened in your family and your physical condition uh, might not have gotten to where you are three years sober, uh, family relationship with your kids. It's good. Um, and, and the desire, obviously, you know, not, not to, uh, not to go back down that road. Uh, this proves, you know, this really does prove in my mind why it's a good idea to have folks we call, uh, voices in recovery on the program. Um, thanks so much. I appreciate this. If there's somebody out there going, well, what should I do? What advice would you give them? Reach out for help. You know, don't don't keep that stuff inside of you. Don't try to do it yourself. Don't beat up on yourself. Um, don't tell yourself that you're a bad person and you're never going to be straight. Reach out, get some help. Um, you know, for me, it was retreat was the start of that. And um, and then the maintenance, you know, once once you you reach out for help and somebody's helping you, you've got to stick with it. You know, it, it's like so many things in life. It takes work. You know, yep. you've got to be dedicated to it. Yep. Gary Moore, thanks so much. We, we appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for sharing the story. I think it's been a huge benefit for uh, people uh, and continued success, of course. Everybody else, thank you for joining us on the, on the corner. Uh, a couple of reminders for you. We appreciate hearing back from you. We love the feedback. Like us if you like us on Facebook. Uh, there's ways uh, to also uh, write a review if you like. And it's really easy to push the subscription button. By the way, it's the only subscription that doesn't cost you anything, uh, but it'll be able uh, you'll be able to stay on top of what we've been doing here on the program. So thanks again to Gary, uh, Gary Moore, our guest, and thank you for your time. And we'll see you on the Behavioral Corner real soon. Gary, take care. All right. Thank you. Retreat Behavioral Health has proudly been serving the community for over 10 years. Here at Retreat, we believe in the power of connection and quality care. We offer comprehensive, holistic, and compassionate treatment from industry-leading experts. Call 855-802-6600 or visit us at www.retreatbehavioralhealth.com to begin your journey today. That's it for now. And make us a habit, hanging out at the Behavioral Corner. And when we're not hanging, 
Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter on The Behavioral Corner.